Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. Hey, Simone, another big week for the coast. Hey, Giacomo. How are you? Good. You want the good news or you want the bad news? Well, I like to start with the good. (laughs) So um, the master plan, the coastal master plan continues to advance in the legislature. It uh, was approved by the House Transportation Committee and the House Committee on Natural Resources and Environment, moving it along in the process. So really, there's one more step, which is a full House vote. Yeah, we uh, full House vote. We expect that maybe Tuesday, Wednesday of next week. You know, they're really they're ramping up before they wind down. Uh, not this Tuesday, but the next Tuesday, they'll be out of session. So they have a lot of work to do, but it'll be fast and furious from here on out. Absolutely. And, you know, we're we see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's been a lot of work. So hopefully we'll have some good news for you next week. Definitely. Um, but there's also been some not so great news this week. Yeah, certainly uh, something that made the news again. Uh, it's uh, something that happened to us the, the past couple of years. But um, and that is that the president has again tried to cut Gomesa, a revenue sharing out of his budget that comes out. And so that has definitely made the news and mostly because this isn't the first time we've had to deal with that. Right. I mean, so the similar move was advanced under the Obama administration. It's now being advanced under the Trump administration. Um, You know, definitely our groups uh, put out a statement in support of Go Mesa and really urging um, our congressional leaders to recognize how important of a source of funding it is to the state of Louisiana. And I guess the bright side is that our delegation is in lockstep. The governor's in lockstep. Um, And it really is locally a bipartisan issue. We just really need to maintain and secure as much funding as we can for this crisis. Definitely. And if you remember before, we've talked about different funding sources and the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act actually was something that passed quite a long time ago, back in 2007. But um, now, and according to the law, phase two begins, and that's really when we begin to see a significant amount of money, which is much needed to help fund our coastal restoration and protection program. Um, We've talked about this before, but BP was a one-time settlement um, that will go over 15 years. And this is really our um, funding source that is enduring, if you will. And so that's why it jeopardizes a lot of the coastal restoration and protection program. And so that's our worry is that we lose that long time steady stream of money that we need to help pay to implement that $50 billion, 50 year master plan. And another, I mean, another important aspect is that Louisiana voters has have sure. constitutionally yeah, dedicated that money yeah. to go to coastal restoration and protection. Sure. Louisiana put their money where their mouth is. And before before we even before they even passed GOMESA in Congress, there was a constitutional amendment passed here in Louisiana, um, one of the highest approval rates at the time to pass that we would dedicate all GOMESA funds to our coastal trust fund. So that's a really important show that Louisiana does mean business when it comes to coastal. Right. And so obviously we're going to be closely following this story. I mean, we're probably going to be pretty vocal on it. And I know there are some hearings coming up in the weeks ahead. Sure. So we'll keep you posted on that. But today we're talking about some other news items, which is mainly the high Mississippi River. The river is high. The river is high. Um, and it, you know, I think it's expected to crest soon, but we thought this was a good opportunity to talk about um, the restoration story. Sure. You know, uh, You know, often we see Kind of with the High River, you see opportunities as well for restoration. So we're going to have Alicia Renfro, who's been on the show before. Mm-hmm. She's a staff scientist with National Wildlife Federation to talk about that um, and kind of how it relates to the High River. But first up, we have um, a really special guest with us that I'm excited to have. He is the author of a new book um, that provides a really fascinating account of the history of engineering along the lower Mississippi River and the impacts that that engineering has had. 
His name is James F. Barnett Jr. Um, the book is Beyond Control, the Mississippi River's New Channel to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, James is also the author of The Natchez Indians, A History to 1735, and Mississippi's American Indians, all published by University Press of Mississippi. His work has appeared in the Journal of Mississippi History, Mississippi Archaeology, and Southern Quarterly. Uh, he's retired as director of the Historic Properties Division with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and lives in the beautiful town of Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, welcome to the show, James. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful to have you on. And I, you know, read read your book. It was very enjoyable, fascinating and informative. Um, as I mentioned, you know, it's a really great overview of some of the uh, modern, I'd say, engineering changes that have uh, been done t along the lower Mississippi River. But it's also really, you know, a page turner. You know, it's written in a way that's uh, interesting, even if you're not an engineer or hydrologist. So highly recommend it to anyone who's looking to learn about that history. But before we dive into the book, I'm just curious, what made you want to explore this topic? Well, uh, probably about 30 years ago, uh, I first saw the control structures at Old River, the, the place on the Mississippi River where the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has their control complex about 40 miles south of Natchez, and I was just stunned by these huge dam-like structures literally out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, it took me a few years to, um, to wonder about it, but I finally uh, got in touch with the Corps of Engineers Office of History in Alexandria, Virginia, and they got me started on on reading and research. So, James, we're going to adopt you as a as a Louisiana kid by the end of this uh, program. This is Samoma Laws with Restore Retreat. Yeah. Tell us a little bit. You know, when we uh, are here in New Orleans, you know, people people talk about the river a little bit, but uh, also um, it might be the same in Natchez. They don't really seem to have the daily recognition of what really is passing by their doorstep. What? Why do you think that is? That's true. Uh, it is true in Natchez as well as New Orleans, and and uh, I grew up near Memphis, Tennessee, and it's the same there. I think the reason is because the the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Mississippi River Commission have done such a uh, uh, an excellent job of keeping the Mississippi River in its historic channel. This is a, a meandering alluvial stream by nature, and uh, for you know, generations now, we have sort of been lulled into this uh, illusion that we have this eternal flowing lake flowing by our communities out there. And James, I want to talk a little bit about that, you know, um, that the Mississippi River that we know today is not the same Mississippi River that's existed over time. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, I guess, more recent history and some of the major changes that have occurred to make it what it is today and maybe what it has been in the past? The main, the main changes that have occurred uh, on the river have, have taken place in the last 300 years, and these have been, of course, uh, building levees, uh, revetments, doing cutoffs to meander bins, and uh, uh, attempting to, to manage and, and uh, you know, manage this river the way that we would like for it to to be managed uh, with and especially with the establishment of the Corps of Engineers control structures at Old River uh, in in its natural state the Mississippi would not be a, a calm friendly stream that we think of it today 
And you start off the book um, with a really nail-biting account of a night in April 1973. Um, You kind of set the stage of people partying on Bourbon Street and listening to Stevie Wonder Uh, at the Municipal Auditorium. My kind of night. (laughs) Simone's kind of Saturday (laughs) night. Um, But little did they know there were some pretty dramatic events happening upriver. Can you tell us a little bit about that night and, and its significance? That was uh, a Saturday night, April 14, 1973. Uh, at, uh, this was uh, at the height of the, the, the great 1973 flood, which, by the way, today is thought of as the second uh, biggest flood in, our, um, in the Mississippi River's history, coming after the 1928, I mean, 1927 flood. But uh, the... Um, uh, 1973 flood was was uh, that night chewing away at the Corps of Engineers' uh, main control structure called the Low Sill up at Old River, the the, the Old River complex. There, the, this was the the Low Sill's first um, test in a major flood. It had, it had been built, uh, uh, finished in about 1961. There and this was the first test of it, and it was uh, really a miracle that night, uh, just by luck, that the uh, control structure did not fail. It it held. So James, we you know we if we um, when we get back from the break, we want to uh, we have to go to a break right now. But when we get back from the break, we want to talk a little bit more about that old river control structure. And um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what that is. And and, um, for people who haven't seen it, like you said, it took you a while to kind of get down to it. Um, But after the break, we'll come back with the author, James Barnett of Beyond Control, the Mississippi River's new channel to the Gulf of Mexico. We'll be back with you at Delta Dispatches in just a minute. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress that has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy... Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore a Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable 
irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. This is Samoma Laws. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our new podcast. Uh, check out the Restore Retreat website or the Restore Mississippi River Delta Facebook page for more details. Um, we have with us um, very important author James Barnett of Beyond Control, the Mississippi River's new channel to the Gulf of Mexico. We were just talking a little bit about how the Mississippi River ticks, but um, one of the things that you brought up was Old River Control Structure. Amazingly, I've, I've never been there. and, and I, I have not either. <laughs> um, and so uh, I one time heard that I think there's a hydro plant or they have some um, hydropower. It, just very, very fascinating. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about um, what Old River Control Structure is, what that area means, what that means for the Red River, the Mississippi River, and Jafalaya Rivers. Just tell us more about it. Sure, I'll, I'll try to cover most of that. <laughs> the, uh, the Old River Control Structures in, in 1973 the the significance for New Orleans was was tremendous because uh, when the Corps of Engineers installed the control structures there and began installing them in the late 1950s, they had become convinced that the Mississippi River was changing its channel from its historic channel down to New Orleans to a new channel down through the Atchafalaya Basin following the Atchafalaya River. So the control structures uh, were, were put there to prevent that from happening. For New Orleans, the uh, scenario would not be good if the Mississippi River were to uh, change its channel. There, uh, even, even a partial change down the Atchafalaya, increasing the amount currently going down the Atchafalaya, would be, would be uh, hard for New Orleans because... It's the force of the Mississippi River's current that keeps the Gulf of Mexico's salt water out of New Orleans and out of the city's um, uh, freshwater pumps that, that get the city's fresh water from the Mississippi River. Without access to fresh water, New Orleans would be in, in a dire situation. Right. And I mean, we often talk a lot about, you know, obviously leveraging the Mississippi River for restoration, both in terms of building, maintaining land to kind of keep us keep that buffer, you know, certainly for storm surge and to keep kind of the salt water out. We've we're obviously through our land loss crisis experiencing tremendous saltwater intrusion and other factors. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the sediment load in the river. So in your book, you mentioned that, you know, I guess when we first started measuring sediment in the river, it was particularly high. Was that sediment load always that high, or, you know, has it fluctuated? The sediment load has has changed. Uh, today, uh, the estimate that is usually given is that about 150 million uh, uh, ton, tons of, of uh, sediment come down the Mississippi River every year. And the sediment is, it's, it's as important to manage the sediment in the river as it is to manage the, the water that's moving the sediment along. In the past, there's, there's evidence that during the 19th century, 
when there was a lot of land clearing and farming going on throughout the Mississippi River drainage basin, that a tremendous amount of, of sediment was washed, uh, you know, from all this land clearing into the tributaries and, and on into the Mississippi River's system. Uh, since the the 1927 flood, the Corps of Engineers' uh, strategy to control the river, which includes reservoirs and levees and uh, so on, blocks a lot of sediment that would normally, you know, get into the river. But still, there's still a quite quite a bit that moves through the channel. Right, and I mean. I know you mentioned it briefly at the end of the book that some experts and scientists and engineers are looking at sediment diversions um, as a way to build and maintain land. Have you, you know, studied that at all, or do you have any thoughts there? I'm not an engineer, and I, I've, I've studied it uh, from a historian's standpoint. And the the uh, just basically the sediment in the Mississippi River can be divided into three groups: the the finest particles, the particles that that would just float in water would, is, is clay. If you take a little ball of clay and drop it into a glass of water, it'll just kind of float there. Um, a little bit heavier particles are, are known as silt, and then the heaviest particles are, are called sand. There. And so these, um, um, what makes it down now uh, to uh, past New Orleans and on out pluming into the Gulf of Mexico is the very finest grained the the clay material that stays in the current all the way down to the end the rest of it the silt and silts and sands for the most part settle out into the channel before they get uh, before they get down to to your area there as far as building the coast back up again uh, i know that i in my research i came across some some articles about trying to divert part of the Mississippi River into those areas to carry sediment to areas where it's needed there. I think that the Corps of Engineers' experiences at Old River could be instructive uh, in, in really how you get the, the sediment that counts, the silts and the sands, into the areas where you need them to, to go. Yeah, that, that's um, very important to us. We are believers that we need to harness the power of the Mississippi River to help us rebuild um, coastal Louisiana. That's that's where we started, and certainly that's where we should end up. Let's talk about governance for a little bit. Um, we, some of us uh, that worked on coastal for a long time understand that it's the Mississippi Rivers and Tributaries Program, or MRT, and that's really um, that's governed by something called the Mississippi River Commission, correct? Correct. So tell us a little bit about the commission. We have some we have some hometown ties here. Uh, I previously knew some of the civilian members appointed um, to that board, but why don't you tell us a little bit about the commission, its origin, and and its importance? And uh, well, briefly, the Mississippi River Commission was established after the Civil War, when the uh, the federal government accepted the the uh, responsibility of keeping the Mississippi River uh, a navigable stream all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and taking that burden off of the off of the states that are down along the river there in the Mississippi River Commission uh, uh, was formed to 
to manage that, the the commission from its beginnings was a mixture of civilian and military people, and and uh, that was important uh, to uh, at the time to not have the Mississippi River completely under military control or completely under civilian control. And so the the relationship with the uh, Corps of Engineers has has been very stable over the years with the, the Mississippi River Commission serving as the uh, policy and planning body and the Corps of Engineers carrying out the research construction and maintenance that the the Mississippi River Commission uh, sure they they still come I think they still come twice a year they come on a high river trip and they, which was a couple weeks back they come on a low river inspection tour uh, Mr. Clifford Smith from Homa was a presidential employee uh, appointee for so so long and then we have a, a PhD professor from UNO that that now serves on the commission so we definitely have some ties there um, in coastal Louisiana and understand that uh, important appointment to that commission. So, James, would you mind holding on just a little bit longer through one more break? We have a couple of things that we want to cover with you. It's, it's too important. We want to keep you on for a little while. Would that be okay? I'll be glad to. Thanks. Great, great. Join us in just a bit for Delta Dispatches. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. This is Jacques Hebert, and we're really honored to have James F. Barnett Jr., the author of a new book out, Beyond Control, the Mississippi River's New Channel to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, James, I know in the book you mentioned this, and I know you've written extensively on this topic in other books, um, but in terms of living with the river, you talk a lot about Native American populations that lived with the river rather than against it. Um, Tell us a little bit about that aspect of the book and what lessons that can teach us about managing future threats we may face. Okay, the the archaeological uh, work done along the Mississippi River Valley, the lower valley, indicates that people have been living in close proximity to the Mississippi River as a, uh, a, a live, meandering, alluvial stream for about 10,000, 12,000 years, something like that. The people... Uh, adapted themselves to the river and uh, used it for a transportation system using mainly wooden dugout canoes to go wherever they wanted to uh, throughout the river system and its many bios and tributaries. The, um, uh, the Indians knew where they could live and where they shouldn't live, and they, they stayed away from the, the active channel they um, uh, they expected the annual floods uh, in in late prehistoric times when when uh, farming was being practiced by the the Indians they they expected the annual floods to flood their fields and and rejuvenate with with uh, uh, rich new soil you know the the fields there they in other words they 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 let the river be the river. In our situation, we have have been uh, holding the river back now for about 300 years, and what we have going on really is an arms race. The uh, the river bed is rising because of the deposition of, of uh, sediment. Uh, the levees have to be built higher. The floods today are not any bigger than they were 
in the past. We've never had one as big as the 1927 flood. But the floods seem to be uh, getting higher because of this rise in the riverbed and the need for higher levees. And so I ask in the book, you know, what are our levees going to look like in a thousand years or in a hundred years? Great. And, you know, I, I mean, it is so fascinating. And I wish we could get to all of, you know, the important topics that you raise in the book. But I highly encourage people to go out to their bookstore and pick up a copy. Um, I did want to ask, well, we do like to keep it fun here on Delta Dispatches. Mm-hmm. So we have to ask our guests the fun question. Um, I know you're in Natchez and we're in New Orleans. So let's exclude those two options. But other than those two cities, what is your favorite Mississippi River town or city? It would probably have to be um, uh, uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I was I was born and raised in in northeast Arkansas, and have have wonderful memories of going to Memphis as a child. And so uh, that's a place I I think about a lot. Good barbecue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never been, but I look forward to going. Um, so we'll take a road trip. <laughs> One one final question. Um, you highlight some pretty interesting characters in your book. Um, two of them, you know, were well known: uh, Captain Henry Miller Shreve, and then Hans Albert Einstein. So the son of Albert Einstein. Tell us a little bit about these men and their impact on the river. Shreve, of course, was a a, a legend, a nineteenth century legend. He was bigger than life, like a lot of the people, a lot of the characters from that time period. He. Um, uh, had a he accomplished a lot in his lifetime and and one of his main accomplishments was the removal of the Red River raft, the big uh, log jam that that clogged up the Red River for a long time and and he developed a special kind of boat uh, called a snag boat to um, to do that work for him uh, and and of course Shree became involved at Old River because he uh, Cut off the the channel there, the channel loop that had formed there, that that really sort of began the uh, or, or encouraged the Mississippi River's drift into the Chafalaya Basin. Hans Albert Einstein is, uh, was a fascinating person. He was at the top of his field in the the movement of sediment in streams. There was there wasn't really anybody anybody better than him, a couple of people uh, equal to him in that field of, of engineering, but uh, the Corps of Engineers called upon him a lot to come from his base at the University of California at Berkeley to the Mississippi Valley, uh, and he was called in uh, to help the Corps of Engineers develop the old river control structures in the late 1950s so that not just water, but sediment could also be moved through those structures. And, and um, uh, uh, he's a fascinating individual, uh, uh, just as his father was. And, um, you know, uh, one important aspect that I think a lot of people don't realize about, you know, well, not so much the Mississippi River, but the Atchafalaya River. And, and you, I mean, a lot. I guess you posture in the book that there is, uh, you know, a possibility that the Mississippi River could, you know, shift back to the Atchafalaya River. Um, and, you know, you talk about how important old river control structure is to maintaining the current flow. But the Atchafalaya River that we know today is not the Atchafalaya River of the past. Is that correct? 
the Chafalaya River originally uh, was one and the same with the Red River. Uh, if you go back far enough in, into, into time, uh, the Red River flowed uh, down through the Atchafalaya Basin and did not intersect with the Mississippi River uh, until the Mississippi River uh, created a meander bend that moved out to the west from the Mississippi River's channel and intercepted the Red River out there. And so you had a situation when the first European explorers got to this area and began to travel the river where the uh, the the Red River flowed into the Mississippi River uh, at the top of this big meander bend, and then a mile or two to the south of that, the Mississippi wasn't able to take the entire Red River flow. So to the south of that, a portion of the combined Red and Mississippi flowed out down through the Atchafalaya Basin, and that that uh, portion is what uh, uh, began to grow and necessitated eventually the control structures. And, um, you know, I think we hear a lot about, um, you know, levees, right, as one uh, major part of the Mississippi River and tributary system. And anytime there's a high river event, of course, folks in New Orleans and elsewhere, you know, think about the Bonnicary Spillway. And we're going to have a, a staff scientist on later to talk about Bonny, the Bonnicary and kind of its opening and that sort of thing. But can you talk a little bit about the importance of floodways? So whether it's the Chafalaya, Morganza, floodways or the Bonacary Spillway, why were they created and kind of what were some of the consequences of that? The floodways were created after the 1927 flood. Up to 1927, the, the Mississippi River Commission and the Corps of Engineers felt like the levees that they had built could contain the river, that there was no need for any other type of flood control. Uh, the 1927 flood proved that wrong. The, the river crevassed in a number of places. And um, uh, and so, after the 1927 flood, the the uh, 1927 1928 Flood Control Act included lots of uh, other ways to control the river, including floodways, which would be like controlled crevasses, where you could open up the banks of the river at some point when the, when a flood is really uh, getting dangerous, and let a lot of water out of the main channel down into, uh, into through a floodway. And that's what the Atchafalaya floodway does. It's one of the largest floodways in the world, and that's also what the Bonnicary spillway does. It, it lets water out of it and, and takes the pressure uh, off of New Orleans. Right. And, you know, one final question for you, and I have to ask because it's a perfect segue into our next segment um, to talk about, you know, some of the scientific aspects of the river. But in the book, you give a helpful um, overview and definition of some terms that are often throw, thrown around. I throw throw them around without sometimes fully understanding what they mean. But can you explain, um, you know, you know, kind of what's in your glossary in terms of what exactly does cubic feet per second mean? And what is like essentially when we say river stage or river gauge, what does that mean? Okay. The uh, cubic feet per second is the, the way that the Corps of Engineers um, measures the discharge or the flow of the Mississippi River. And once you get used to it, you, uh, the numbers that it entails, it's, it, it's a very convenient way to keep up with how much water is flowing down the river. And what that means is that if you stand on a given point on the Mississippi River and look out across the river, uh, 
um, uh, a certain number of cubic feet of water are uh, are passing you every second. Uh, for example, uh, if you have a, a a flow of one million cubic feet per second, which is uh, not much above what we've got right now with the river uh, rising uh, out there, there are a million cubic feet per second. Uh, I've, I use an example of the of an eighteen wheeler that can carry in this cargo. Uh, Part there, about four thousand cubic feet, uh, uh, four thousand square feet, or, or cubic feet of um, of uh, space. And so, if you have a million cubic feet per second going by you on the river, you're having two hundred fifty trucks worth of water passing you every second out there. Uh, so that's that's kind of how that works, uh, and. Um, and I use it because it's the standard terminology used that, by the Corps of Engineers. Yeah, that's so helpful. Uh, I think you, you said it exactly right. I mean, we, we say CFS like it's no big deal, especially when we talk about diversions. And um, that's a, a helpful way to relate it. You know, we always talk about Davis Pond. It's about 10,000 CFS. And so it's good to kind of connect those. Jock, why don't you tell everybody where you can get the book? Um well, you know, I, I bought the book. Um, I know uh, you, it's selling at Lemuria Books, uh, you know, and 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 all over. But no, Mr. <laughs> Barnett, where can we get the book? Because it is a fascinating read, and there's a lot that we didn't get to. Well, I encourage people to shop their their local uh, uh, family-run bookstores. If you don't have access to something like that, the book is available on Amazon, and. Uh, it's in a lot of a lot of bookstores. Great. So it should be easily available. Well, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. And as a reminder, please go out and get Beyond Control, the Mississippi River's new channel to the Gulf of Mexico by James F. Barnett Jr. Thanks again. And um, I, we appreciate your being a guest. Thanks Back on with Alicia Renfro after the break. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. This is Simone Laws with Restore Retreat. And this is Jacques Hebert with National Audubon Society. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSA, WGSO and online through our new podcast. We have an old friend back with us. Alicia, welcome back. Hello. We heard you during the commercial break. You're you're like our, I think, our, one of our first repeat guests. Right, yeah, and actually, I know. I noticed, I noticed it was me, Simone, and Doc <laughs> that were doing the ads. Yeah, right. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> Alicia, I think you and were. Don Cheadle, right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he's, he's not here with us. <laughs> no. Alicia, you were our inaugural guest, yes. in fact. Yes. Oh Oh, Welcome. my gosh. Welcome back. Well, we wanted to bring you back in. We wanted to talk about the Mississippi River. It's pretty high. So tell us a little bit about what that means. Has it crested yet? What does that mean? Um, when? What level? Tell us our science stuff, Alicia. Okay. Well, if anybody's been brave enough to take a peek over the levee anytime recently, you'll notice that the river is quite high at this point. Um, right now, moving past New Orleans is about a million cubic feet per second. We just learned what that was. Yes. I know. I Helpful. heard that. That's amazing. That's <laughs> amazing. I, I put it in terms of Niagara Falls. So his is probably actually better, but mine's is about 11 Niagara Falls oh, every uh, second. Very, yeah. very good way to explain that. So, yeah. Alicia, like people think High River, they open in the Bonnie Carry. I heard you took a little joy ride over there. 
<laughs> I did. Um, yeah, I took the day off, so whatever the Bonacary spell <laughs> that was, work. that's my idea of a good time. And, um, you know, I had a friend in town, and I wanted to show her the Bonacary. So, uh, yeah, at this point, the Bonacary, it doesn't look like they're going to open it. The uh, river is going to top out probably about 16 and a half feet here in New Orleans, and about 17 feet is when they opened the Bonacary spillway. However... Because of the design of the spillway, water starts to leak through when it gets kind of high. So while we haven't opened it, there is a lot of water that's actually gushing through there. And there were a lot of people out there fishing the other day. Yeah. So, Alicia, you know, this is something that it's it's just more familiar in the past couple of years because they've opened it m- more so in the, the past couple of years. So I think they uh, tell us the last time they opened it and then they opened it even before that, just a few years before. And then tell us exactly what that means by opening it. Okay. So um, the Bonacary Spillway was constructed after the 27 flood. It took them a couple years to open it. And since about 1932 or so, when they finished constructing it, it's opened around 11 times. I think that's about 11 times. Um, And now previously, the most recent opening was actually January of last year in 2016. They opened it for a short period of time and about 200,000 cubic feet per second flowed out of it. And then before that, it was in the 2011 flood, that big flood we had a few years ago. They opened that. And so what that means is the structure is like a, it's 350 bays and it has these wooden timbers. They're like wooden. Old these school, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, old, old school. <laughs> and they actually have to go in with a cr- They have this little crane that they use and they pull these out one by one to open up the bays. And the Corps actually, they opened up a couple of bays last week just to practice because, you know you got to make sure you can do it when push comes to shove. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, in the, Mr. Barnett's book, he talks about, you know, the 1927 flood, 1928 flood act, and how quickly after that they constructed the Bonnie Carey spillway. You know, it's surprising yeah. to think that the Corps could move that quickly. Yeah, we had a yeah. governor's advisory commission, Alicia. I think you were there, and we went to the structure building itself, and we heard a little bit about it. It was fascinating to hear mm-hmm. how quickly and how expensive it was at the time. But again, mm-hmm. just kind of like a post-Katrina it needed to get done and it got done. So it's and it a, it's, was on the fly. Like they did lots of things they'd never done before and they figured out how to do them in the moment. And they, I mean, it's a 90 year old structure at this point. They did a good job. Yeah. Good job, Army Corps. <laughs> it's uh, stood the test of time, let's hope. And so, Alicia, I want to talk a little bit. I mean, we often see these awesome images uh, when the river's at a high peak or when they open the Bonnie Carey spillway, um, sediment pouring out into Lake Pontchartrain, obviously out of the Bird's Foot Delta. Can you tell us a little bit about? the implications for restoration that a high river has. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I know you wrote a really great blog that's on our Delta Dispatches blog, org slash Delta Dispatches. But tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, so whenever we have a high, a high river event down here in southeastern Louisiana, it means there's been a lot of rainfall other places, usually farther up the basin, typically in the Missouri and Ohio River Valleys, which is the case this time. And along with that, rainfall is also sediment that's being washed off the land. So when you have the river rising, you also have a lot of sediment being transported with the water, particularly as the river starts to rise. When it, after it's kind of peaked and, go da- and goes down, it, it carries a little less sediment. So as the river is rising and carrying all this sediment, that's really the opportunity we have 
to build and maintain the wetlands that we that we currently have. And so you see those satellite images most of the time. So right now the weather's not really cooperating. There's a lot of cloud cover. But you can start to see the, that brown muddy water coming out of the Birdfoot Delta and out of the Atchafalaya. And then when they open the Bonnie Carrier, when it leaks, you see that muddy water going into Lake Pontchartrain. So if you have a project like a sediment diversion farther downriver, you can open it up during this time where there's a lot of that sediment available to get that sediment out of the river and into those wetlands. And an added bonus, it also builds a little redundancy into your flood protection system. You're helping lower the water that's against the levees. So extra extra super bonus. <laughs> yeah, and Alicia, on our website, we have a quote by you. I think it might have been in a news article or blog post, but it says, to restore the health and vitality of the Mississippi River Delta in coastal Louisiana, not only now, but for years to come, it is vital that all of the sediment is treated like the pre- precious resource it is, and every effort is made to maximize its capture for coastal restoration. We couldn't agree more. Let's put that on a bumper yeah. sticker. Yeah. I know. <laughs> oh, I need some editing. <laughs> Alicia, we love how you help us digest a lot of this science for us. And we encourage you to really check out the Delta Dispatches blog with the cute name, April Showers Bring May Flows. <laughs> we are almost out of time, but we have to ask. Alicia, I heard you went on a culinary tour recently with a friend. So what was the best restaurant you went to? Uh, you know what? I, ha- I hate to play favorites with my New Orleans restaurants, but you- this time around, Pesh. Nice. Ooh, love Pesh. Yeah. Chef yeah. Ryan Pruitt has done a lot to yeah. you know raise awareness to restoration. He came down to Fouchon with us a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. Oh. We had a great time. Great time on the water. So, Alicia, we love having you on. Thanks for being with us. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Alicia Renfro. Yay. Thank you, Alicia, Yay. for coming on. Um, this has been the end of an exciting week. Shop. Yeah, great week. A lot of news. And Simone, you're... Uh, you I'm know, out next you're week. You're out next week. I'm out. So we're Hopefully uh, celebrating the passage of the master plan. <laughs> yeah. So we'll update you. But for now, you can go on our website, MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Delta Dispatches. Thanks for another great show. See you soon.